Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Giving. So that's what we're going to talk about. Just to take it easy on the pastor. All right, the Jesus bill, in case you didn't know what that meant. That's what that means. But now I know what you're feeling like. You're feeling like a long-tailed cat in a room with a rocking chair, and I'm in the rocking chair. Think about that analogy for a second. And I want you to take yourself out of that defensive posture and for this time together, everyone here is an elder or a deacon or a staff member. There no, there's no congregation. For right now, we're all on the board, the deacon board, the elder board, or the staff. We're all looking at the future of the church. So for this amount of time, you have to worry about the future of the church, the church at large. It's your responsibility. You have to think about the trends in giving over the last 30 years because it's your job to try to reverse them because they're not good, which we'll talk about in a few moments. You have to rebuild Bethany. You have to pay the staff. You have to fund missions. You have to renovate 80% of the building. You hold the responsibility for this small corner of God's kingdom. There's no congregation today. You're an elder. You're a deacon. You're a staff member. So what do you think we should do to help you? How are you going to lead us to fund the church of tomorrow, and how are you going to pay the Jesus bill? Reality is, values have a lot to do with giving. After surveying more than uh, 16,500 donors to 17 different Christian ministries, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability discovered that most people give based on internal values, not on who asks them or how they're asked. In other words, giving is sort of innate. People either are committed to it or not based on their own values. And here are the things that people give to. So here was one of the questions. How likely are you to support ministries that work to tell others about Jesus? 96%. That's good. Make God's word available to all people, 95%. Care for orphans, 86%. Aid in disaster relief, 77%. Address injustice or oppression, 66%. So these are values that are driving giving. You could see in those questions I read there, or I should say the values I stated, there was evangelism, telling others about Jesus. There was compassion. There was the value of human life. There was the nature of God when you get to things like justice or injustice. But for this discussion, I want to focus on why people give, not what they give to. Why would you support a ministry? That was another question asked. Why would you support a ministry? 45%, I've been blessed, so I give back. 23%, my gift makes a difference. 15%, it's the right thing to do. 9%, I know someone working there. 6%, God will bless me for it. 4%, other. Well, here's my concern. And this maybe I'm splitting hairs a little bit here. I'm concerned about these percentages a little bit. They're all true, 
But the third one kind of scares me, that only 15% said they give because it's the right thing to do. Because generosity is not just sort of an emotional fuzzy, it's a command, and it's a core Christian value, and it's a reflection of our heart's condition. That's where generosity is to come from. So today I want to survey the Bible, and we're going to look at sort of what have God's expectations been throughout salvation history, and how do we champion them. So we're, going to, we're not going to have a passage today. We're going to look through the whole Bible. We're going to look at sort of a systematic theology of giving, and we're going to answer a lot of questions about that. And we're going to start with the Old Testament, giving norms in the Old Testament and the idea of tithing. Now, first, tithing does not mean giving. And that's the first misnomer I want to talk about. Tithing is not giving. The word actually means a tenth. So when somebody is tithing, they're not giving. They're actually giving a tenth. So when we use the term, it's actually tied to an amount. If you were to say to a friend of yours and you're talking about charitable giving, you said, you know, I tithe. 2% 2% last year. That's, that's not a thing. That actually doesn't make any sense because the word tithing is not giving. If you said I tithe 6%, it, it's actually not a thing. If you said I tithe 9%, it's not a thing. If you say you tithe, you don't have to give a percent. It actually means a tenth. Tithing actually has support in the ancient world even before the Old Testament law made it a requirement. In fact, there's a story in Genesis 14 which is very interesting. Abraham is the father of Israel, so he's the first Jew, if you will. He wasn't Jewish, he's just a guy, and God then made the nation of Israel out of him, so he turned him into one, if if you will, as an adult. Abraham is settled in sort of the hill country of Judea, I would guess, when you look at the time of Jesus, probably the hill country of Judea. He's right by the plains of the Jordan Valley, which is down by the Dead Sea. And you remember he had a lot, uh, a nephew named Lot, and so Lot lived down in those plains by the Dead Sea in a little town called Sodom. And so there was a regional skirmish or a battle where a group of regional kings, and there wasn't like a world power at that time necessarily, so a lot of these little cities had kings. They're sort of like little city-states. And so there was a little regional battle there where some regional kings came in and they took over those cities of the plain and they robbed them and took their people hostage. And so when that happened, Lot, Abraham's nephew, was taken away hostage in this sort of regional battle. Now, in that world, that probably would have meant slavery or ransom, one of the two. Either taking these people as slaves, because that's how you would become a slave in the ancient world, one of the ways, or you're going to be ransom. So Abraham organized an army. Now, this is a small army. Abraham is a guy, he's a wealthy guy, but he organized this army of about 300 plus and they pursued the captors, and they defeated them. Now, I believe in that world, Abraham is probably entitled to all of the plunder. And instead, Abraham tithed, the Bible says. He wanted none of it because he didn't want anyone else to be able to say that God wasn't the one who enriched him, but he gave a tithe or a tenth to his local priest whose name was Melchizedek. You see that name just a couple of times in the Bible there, and I believe in the book of 
Hebrews as well. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, so a little town there named Salem. He was the king there, and he's also sort of a local priest. He was a follower of the Most High God, it says. And so this is long before Abraham is a nation. Even before Abraham is a clan, like at the end of Genesis, before Egypt, before Moses, before the law was given, Abraham tithed to this priest the sort of the religious system he was a part of in the Old Testament. Now, then you get to the law. And by the law, I mean the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So tithing came in more formally when God gave Moses the law. So now Abraham has become a clan. They became a nation. They went down to Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years. They come out of Egypt. They're probably two to three million people. And as they're coming out of Egypt, they get these laws from God. And they were a combination of laws that covered religious and ethical demands, covered civil and criminal codes. And tithing was right a part of that because it's a part of their religious law. But it's actually more complicated than that. So I'm going to scare you for a second. There were three tithes, three different tithes in Old Testament law. There was a Levite's tithe. The tribe of Levi, as you recall, was to sort of be the clergy for the nation. The Levites didn't inherit a piece of land like other tribes. They were to be dispersed throughout the whole nation, and they would sort of carry on the religious services for all of the people. In Numbers 18.24, I'm going to show you this verse. This is about that tithe, the Levites' tithe or the Lord's tithe. It says, for the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. In other words, they're not getting land. This is their inheritance. Therefore, I've said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. That's God's way of saying, we're not giving them a piece of ground. So what, what's going to happen is they're going to be supported by the general population as they give this Levite's tithe, and they will serve you in religious matters. Now, this would have included, because most people lived on a farm or a ranch, if you will, back then. This was an agricultural economy. It would have included parts of their flocks, parts of their herds, parts of their crops, etc. And that was how the Levites lived and ate. It's the closest thing to sort of the support of a church staff in modernity, where it's like, okay, we support the church. There's people who work there because the majority of a local church budget, if you include missions as well, which is staff, tends to be people. And that was how the Levites lived. But there was a second tithe, scary. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 and 26. Now, you're going to love this, because God cared about your vacations back then. Now, this is actually sort of a vacation tithe, because back then, people went to religious festivals on vacation. And there were multiple religious vacations, if you will, that were built into Jewish culture. So this was what I would call sort of the Christian family camp tithe, or the missions trip tithe. You were basically saving for a vacation with a religious purpose, and it was just like paying for Christian family camp or a missions trip. And this is what Deuteronomy 24 says. You shall surely tithe all the produce of what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. But notice how you spend it. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. I, I didn't see that when I was putting that verse in there. What do you know? Hey, yeah, you're going to Christian family camp where they don't let you drink. I just pull this verse out and tell them, hey. N never mind. All right. 
whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. So basically, God outlined in the Old Testament that when you went to these special sort of religious festivals, and there were three or four key ones in, in sort of Jewish culture, that you were to save for those and literally 10% of your produce or income throughout the year should be set aside for these three or four weeks or so that you're gonna be going on these religious vacations. Now what's interesting is this is in Deuteronomy 14. If all three tithes are mentioned there right in a row, you've got this one and then in verse 27 it's going to say, don't forget the Levite's tithe or the Lord's tithe. And then right after that, you've actually got the third tithe. Tithe, and this is in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. I think when you see in the Old Testament the word storehouse, this is what it's talking about. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands which you do. This was known as the poor tithe. It took care of orphans and widows. In that culture, and I really mean this seriously, it would have prevented prostitution. Women separated from a family, separated from a male, typically did not do well economically. This would have prevented prostitution. It would have rescued children. Poor foreigners who didn't own land could use it. It was basically the local food bank. People coming through who didn't have anything could go to this sort of Levitical storehouse and they could be taken care of. Now this type took place every third year and I have no idea how they did it, but I'm guessing there would have been some sort of rotation of clans or families or something so you didn't have everyone giving this at once and then things rotting, but it took place every third year. All right, so we've got some math majors here. We're going to keep this easy. Three tithes, one of them's only every three years. That's 23 and a third percent. And it covered your local religious establishment, your vacations with a purpose, and your local food shelf. And it all happened through the Levitical system. There weren't nonprofits doing this. This was all through your local religious system that the Levites were running. Plus, there was a temple tax when you went to the temple, which you were required to do. There were offerings which were non-compulsory, which you were asked to give. They were free will offerings. And if these rules were not followed, in Malachi chapter 3, God actually describes it as robbery because God viewed those resources as his. So tithing was 23 and a third percent, and by the time people were done with giving, they were probably giving 25% or more. Now, I probably got you nervous. Again, remember, you're all elders, you're all deacons, you're all staff, we're all trying to figure out how to fund the Jesus bill. So are we under that kind of a system today? Well, that's a really interesting debate, and thank you for asking that question. The second point, the New Testament hermeneutical problem is does the tithe carry forward? Now, this is a little complicated. Lots of rookie mistakes are made here when it comes to biblical interpretation. Hermeneutics 
really means the science of interpretation. And it relates to a lot of things in the scripture. It relates to genre or the type of literature that is written. So you interpret Proverbs different than you interpret Psalms, different than you would interpret Old Testament narrative, different than you would interpret Old Testament law because different kinds of literature uh, lend themselves to being some more direct, some less direct with God's commands. So there's sort of rules of interpretation that you naturally and intuitively follow just like if you're reading a love letter versus a legal document versus poetry. You naturally do this. You will naturally think this way. So it relates to genre or type of literature. It relates to, relates to grammar and syntax. Words matter. What they mean matters. How they're put together matters. Where the emphasis is, it matters. In this case, though, hermeneutics relates to progressive revelation. Progressive revelation means that different people at different times were under different sets of commands. In other words, Abraham did not have the same level of information about God or expectations from God. He didn't have the Old Testament law yet. We see that he tithed, but he didn't give 22 and a, 23 and a third percent. We, we had a different set of expectations. He lived pre-Old Testament covenant. From Exodus to Malachi, the people of Israel were under the Old Testament covenant or law for the nation of Israel. New Testament Christians, which are us, are not Old Testament Jews. We're not under Jewish law. I know what some of you are thinking, but I've read my New Testament, and didn't Jesus validate tithing in the New Testament? That's a great question. The answer is yes and no. Yeah. Matthew 23, 23. Here's Jesus. He's talking to his favorite group of people, the scribes and Pharisees. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I am amazed at the level of name calling he can get away with and not be a sinner. It is shocking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So what Jesus is saying here is basically, here are all you dudes who have these little, you've got your, what would you call that today? An herb garden. Yeah, you got an herb garden. Pharisees have herb gardens. That does surprise me about them because most of these spent most of their time figuring out what you could and couldn't do. But they also on the side evidently had little herb gardens. And Jesus is saying they are so meticulous and legalistic that they're literally tithing their herbs, but they were missing the weightier parts of the law. In other words, their heart wasn't in it. But he does validate that their tithing is good. So then tithing is a New Testament command? Yes, right? No. And here's a problem. Jesus didn't live in the New Testament era. What do you mean by that? Open your Bible, Pastor Paul. It's in the New Testament. He's a transitionary figure from the Old to the New Testament. Jesus lived under Jewish law. The New Testament era post-Jesus really begins in Acts chapter 2. That's when we have the church age. Jesus is this transitionary figure that's fulfilling the Old Testament law. He lives under it. So did all the Jews in his era. He points to the future. But it shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus is validating Old Testament law. He said, I haven't come to take it away. I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus is sort of this transitionary figure between Old and New Testament. But Paul states in Romans and Galatians that we're not under the Old Testament law. 
He says circumcision in the early church is no longer required. Acts 15 has got the funniest church meeting ever in the history of the church where they're debating about whether Gentile believers, men, have to get circumcised in the new members class. And of course the argument is that's probably not gonna help us grow the kingdom. You know, there's gonna be a lot of women joining the church but a lot of dudes are just gonna stay on the sidelines. So Paul said, no, they don't have to be circumcised. That's crazy. It was a sign of being a Jew, one of the people of God. So circumcision doesn't carry over. The temple system didn't carry over. The book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus fulfills the temple system. It's no longer necessary. We don't have to sacrifice sheep and lambs, or should say lambs and doves anymore. That's over. We don't worship on the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday. And so here's the problem. The tithing laws are intertwined with all of the rest of this old covenant stuff that we are no longer under. In fact, I'm going to tell you the verse, the phrase that is right before the tithing laws that I read earlier in Deuteronomy 14, 21. Here it is. Get this because this is really important that you don't do this. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Yeah, that's a command in the Old Testament. Now, that was something evidently pagans did, so I know some of you are probably going to have to change your lunch plans right now. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Well, that's right before the three tithes are mentioned in Deuteronomy 14. You would never say we can't have that meal today. You wouldn't even know about it. The next verse describes the three tithes. The law is a whole. God's moral law hasn't changed. Murder is still wrong. Lying and cheating are still wrong. Adultery is still wrong. But this Old Testament covenant with Israel is not something we are under. No verse beyond Acts 2 ever mentions the word tithe. Not one. And there's a lot of verses about giving. A lot. But they don't talk about tithing. Generosity is mentioned all over the place. Not tithing. You're going, I know. I know what you're thinking. Paul, just pray and stop right now. Just stop. No, it's too early, and I want you to get your money's worth. (laughs) Remember, you're a leader. There are no congregants here today. Everyone's an elder. Everyone's a deacon. Everyone's a staff member. We're all trying to figure out how we're going to have a church in 20 to 40 years. All right? Here's my favorite verse on giving. And the word giving isn't even mentioned. It's not even in a giving context, but it's my favorite verse about this subject. It's a verse about how God still gets what he wants from us, even when we don't have the rule book anymore, even when we don't have the old covenant which guided Israel in all kinds of areas. It's a verse about motivation in a post-Old Testament world. It's a verse that comes from the Apostle Paul as he's explained we're not under the law anymore, but now the Spirit of God is to be sort of the presiding ruler in our lives under the Lordship of Christ, and he says this, so that the requirement of the law, which we're not under anymore, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
What Paul is basically saying in the early part of Romans chapter 8, so let me break this down and make it really simple for you. What he's saying is we're not under the law anymore. That's not the driving factor anymore in our lives to help us do the right thing. But the Spirit of God is now in us, and when the Spirit of God is operating the way he's intended to operate, it makes the Old Testament code unnecessary because we're going to be convicted to be generous. We don't need the rule book. The Jesus bill is going to be paid because the Spirit of God resides in us. And we're going to be generous people because God will inspire that in us. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 8 with the power of the Spirit in our lives. So then, number three, giving in the New Testament era and today. Well, I would suspect God's Spirit is a little less sanguine today than he used to be because Romans chapter 8 isn't working as well as we would like it to work. The New Testament era was full of examples and teaching on sacrificial giving. And those are the kinds of words that you typically hear when you're, when you're giving a sermon and you're focused on a New Testament text about giving. It talks about sacrificial giving. It talks about trusting in God and not wealth. There's a deep commitment to funding the birth and the expansion of the early church. There's an emphasis, and Jesus does this, in, of course, in many of his teachings, on treasures in heaven, those kinds of things, and really having our values drive this giving that's inspired by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that developed into throughout church history. And I'm going to do the best I can to represent what I believe has gone on for 2,000 years in the Christian era. It developed into a basic retention of the Lord's tithe or the Levitical tithe. Christians throughout most of history tithed to their local churches. That was sort of the known expectation. They didn't give three tithes. They didn't do two and then one every third year. But they typically kept what I would say was this Levitical tithe concept, and they gave 10%. Now, proving that as a command is difficult? I can't. I'm being honest with you. I'd love to be able to say that's what God tells us to do. He doesn't. I mean, maybe there'd be more power in my mess if I just twisted the Scriptures a little and said he does, but he doesn't. And I'm not into Scripture twisting. I would know how to do it, but I don't. So, I can't prove that's a command. I can't. But it's what Dee Dee and I have typically practiced our whole married lives, with very few exceptions. Because it's basically historically what's going on. And so we, we've had about a dozen relatives in ministry that are relatives of ours, a dozen relatives that are in ministry. We've never tried to get the churches I pastored to fund them in any way. And mostly we haven't given to them except on special occasions because we were committed to giving to our local church. Hasn't always made us popular in the family. It was the right thing to do. We gave to our church. We gave to our church's missions program. We gave to our church's building programs. This is what past generations did. They tithed to their churches. And they gave offerings elsewhere. They gave 10% to their churches, and they gave offerings to other organizations. But over time, two trends have developed which threaten the future of this church and every church in Canada. And I'd say especially in North America this is going on. I'm not sure about other countries. But there are two trends that are really going to be a problem for all of us. Because remember, we're all what? Today, we're all elders. 
We're all deacons, we're all church staff. There are no congregants. We're all in a meeting together. We're having a business meeting. We're trying to figure out how is there gonna be a church in 40 years. Here are the two trends. There's a rapid drop in the percentage of Christians who tithe to their church. That's the number one trend. I believe it's in the single digits now. So basically what I would say is the historic standard that used to be followed is now being followed by one or two people in 20 as it relates to funding their local church ministries. The second issue is there's an expanded and extra biblical view of tithing that it is beyond the local church. And I would say that's really, that's kind of the water we live in at Bethany. That's what I've run into as I've talked to people here about their views of giving. People don't necessarily believe in giving to their local church, they believe in giving, and they believe it can go anywhere they want to. So what you have are people creating their, their own sort of nonprofits rather than giving to their local church. So I wanna address that and give you a little information about that. Now I'm gonna talk about people south of the border here because we can always just throw them under the bus because we're in Canada and they have really good data, okay? There's a lot of, because the Christian population is bigger, the nation's bigger, the data is a lot more accessible, and, but I would suspect it's gonna be very similar to Canadians, all right? So more than a quarter of American evangelicals do not give any money to church. More than a quarter of them. About 11% never attend a church, which is interesting, so perhaps it makes sense they don't give to one, another, one either, so they're probably sort of the, the internet church or something like that. Don't be offended, those of you online, we love you. But we do want you here, if you can make it. According to a survey, another 15% attend church but never put money in the plate. Giving historically increases with income and age, but the study notes that millennials and Gen Z are much more likely to give directly to family, friends, or even strangers than to support institutions. That's a huge trend that's a great problem for the future of the church. So percentage of income evangelicals give to a church. People who give more than 8%, and this is a fairly recent study, this was done last year. More than 8%, that's 10%. So if you actually went to tithing, it's probably between five and 10%. People who give two to 8% to a church, 23%, and 26% give zero. And here's the real kicker, 42% give less than 2% to a church. All right, so the standard that we had historically of tithing, which was 10%, it means 10%, doesn't mean giving, it means 10%. 42% give less than 2%. In fact, I think the average amount that the average evangelical gives to everything in their lives is about 2.5%, I believe. And now what we're saying is a lot of that's not going to the church anymore. In another article, Can You Split Your Tithe?, from Christianity Today magazine, this was only four or five years ago. According to Lifeway Research, among Protestants who attend church monthly or more, four out of five say tithing is a biblical man that, command that still applies today. So what you've got is four out of five people actually disagree with my hermeneutical analysis of the text I've given you today. Four out of five people would say, Pastor Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Four out of five people here would say that sometimes too. But anyway, four out of five people say, Paul's wrong about his analysis of the text. We're under the tithing laws. I don't believe, with that. I believe that, but I tithe. So they're saying four out of five would say tithing is a biblical man command that still applies today. And here's where they say giving can go. 
Now remember, 47% here are saying it can only go to a church. That's interesting. So you get half of American Protestants, or this is probably American, I would guess, half of Protestants are saying your tithe has to go to your church, 47%. Now what's funny about that is only one, you know, one or two out of 20, five to 10% actually do it, but 50% basically say it can only go to your church. 48% say it can go to other Christian ministries. 34% say it can go to an individual in need. 18% say it can go to a secular charity. So that kind of thinking is new, and it's scary for the future of the church, quite frankly. The article, Can You Split Your Tithe, Christianity Today magazine, four or five years ago. So remember, today, right now, all right, we're all elders, we're all deacons, we're all staff, Some of you aren't smiling at me anymore. We're all elders. We're all deacons. We're all staff. No congregation. Bethany's future is in your hands. How will we ensure its success? Three considerations. One, imagine if we all prioritize the future of Bethany. I have never been more optimistic than I am today about the future of this church. When I look around here, I see a lot of people who weren't here a year ago. A lot of people weren't here a year ago. The staff is planning in our strategic plan, which the elders were a part of, the staff was a part of. We're planning for a doubling of Bethany in the next seven years, which means we just grow 10% a year, which we think is very doable and it's already underway. Ministries like Awana have just been filling up. We're trying to move Awana, or I should say youth group, to to Friday nights to join Awana in the fall if we can get part of the building renovated by then. That will just expand into family night, which will have a couple of hundred people here every Friday, something for every age group. Coming from the States when they wanted to do Awana on Friday night, I thought that will never work. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, has that worked. We're working with the elders and deacons and the staff to renovate the 80% of the building that needs some renovation. Some of it's pretty urgent because some of it would right now not pass our plan to protect provisions for protecting children. We've got what I would call a lot of dark spaces without windows is a really nice way of saying it. So a building that nobody would have raised eyebrows about 40 or 50 years ago when it was built Now an insurance company will have some concerns about because of certain kinds of places in our building where we need to tear down walls and start over and revision how they're gonna be used. And we're doing it. Every couple of months we're paying a higher price for our check-in software for children because every couple of months we have to tell them the software doesn't cover the number of children we're checking in because more and more families with children are coming here, which was one of the greatest concerns we had a few years ago. We're done playing defense. We have some really positive things going on. We have a lot of work to do, and we need everyone to be a part of it. We need everyone to be a part of it. If this is your church, then this is your church. This is your church. This is my church. Some of you view me as like, oh, he's just traveling through. He'll be gone soon enough, and we can all, you know, wipe our brows of him, you know. This is my church. This is my church, so I give. We tithe, 
Imagine if we all prioritized the future of Bethany. We wouldn't have to worry about the end of the year where I come with my hand out begging for 25% of the budget in six weeks. Because there's plenty of money to do everything we need to do, including renovate this building, without even doing a fundraiser. If we just all say, you know what, I care about this place, and I'm going to support it. Second, return to the habit of tithing to the local church. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. Every time we spend money, we get a receipt, my wallet fills up with them, her wallet fills up with them, and we have a little handwritten sort of graph that I put together every month with about eight areas of spending. We are empty nesters, and we still write down basically every dollar we spend. It's been a lifetime habit. And we'll do it in retirement. We'll do it when, if we need money or don't need money, if we have a lot, if we have a little. It's just the way we live. It's who we are. It's what we do. And we will be tithers to our local church until we die. I don't do it because I'm a pastor. I do it because I'm a Jesus follower. We've always lived that way. We've always lived in a way that we could afford to do that. And when we couldn't afford to do it, we gave up other things like savings in order to tithe. Return to the habit of tithing, which means giving 10% to our local church. For some of you, that's an easy decision because you have the means. This is not a poor church. For some of you, it will be hard because you've, you don't have a lot of means or you've built things into your lifestyle to make it difficult, so work into it. Start at a smaller percentage, but have it as a goal. For some of you, it might require a narrowing of your focus to your church. In other words, you're the kind of person who run your own nonprofits. You give a little to the church, you give a little to everything else. And as a staff member, I, I gotta tell you, it's a little discouraging to hear of all the fundraising that takes place at Bethany, because these stories do come back to us, and then we keep failing to meet budget. But we're raising all kinds of money here for other things. Please prioritize your church. And third, remember giving is about values and generosity is one of God's values. Giving says, eternity is real, I'm committed to laying up treasure in heaven. Giving says, Jesus is Lord of my resources. Giving says, I trust God to take care of me, therefore I'm not trying to keep everything I get. Giving says, this is my church and I'm invested here. There's a recent article in Forbes that reported the conclusion of Chuck Feeney's journey to give away a fortune. The article was titled, The Billionaire Who Wanted to Die Broke. Wouldn't you like to be his relative? The billionaire who wanted to die broke is now officially broke. He actually did it. He was a billionaire and now he's broke. I'm guessing he's not totally broke because broke to a billionaire just means you're a millionaire. Feeney, 89. Well, the reason I want you to hear this article is, okay, so we got billionaires who are getting more generous. And if you follow this, like in the news, it's true. They're like billionaire clubs where they're committed to giving away most of their wealth and yet the trends of Christians are going like, I'm not gonna give away money, I'm not gonna give away money. The trends of unsaved billionaires, I'm gonna give it away at all, I'm gonna give away it all. Just think about that, it's kind of amazing. Feeney, who's 89, co-founded airport retailer Duty Free Shoppers in 1960. He amassed billions while living a life of monk-like frugality. 
Over the last four decades, Feeney has donated more than $8 billion to charities, universities, foundations worldwide through his foundation. And he did it all anonymously. Because of this clandestine, globe-trotting giving campaign, Forbes called him the James Bond of philanthropy. And his example ignited a firestorm of radical generosity by other plutocrats. More than 210 billionaires have signed the giving pledge to date. In an article titled, Zero is the Hero, Feeney summarized his mission in a few sentences. I see little reason to delay giving when so much good can be achieved through supporting worthwhile causes. Besides, it's a lot more fun to give while you live than give while you're dead. Now, at the conclusion of his journey to broke, Feeney tells Forbes, we learned a lot. We would do some things differently, but I'm very satisfied. I feel very good about completing this on my watch. And to those wondering about giving while living, try it. You'll like it. You know, it's funny, there was another guy who said that about 2,000 years ago. That it's better to give than to receive. Now, I don't necessarily identify with that. My wife does. I've got a very generous wife who loves giving away our money. And uh, she's a good person. I mean, she's going to skate into heaven without the blood of Jesus. She'd still get there. They'll look at her and say, you were married to Brush Albert? Yeah, you're in. But anyway, giving's not easy for me. I, I'm, I'm kind of cheap in certain areas. I'm, not, I'm generous in other areas. I'm a good tipper. I'm not cheap in those kind of ways. But giving's not easy for me. It's a lot of money. I do it because it's the right thing to do. My wife, she loves to give. She loves to give. It's in her heart. She's a more generous person. Jesus talked about that. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What Jesus was actually saying is, where you, what you give to, your heart will follow. He wasn't saying start with your heart. He was saying start with what you give to, your heart will follow. It's a very interesting twist on that. We've got billionaires getting more generous. We've got Christians headed in the other direction. We're all elders, we're all deacons, we're all staff. We all need to together be concerned about the future of evangelical Christianity in this church and in our country. And it's gonna take all of us to keep inspiring that value in each generation to make sure it happens. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you for your incredible generosity to us. And I know these words today, these are, these are not easy words for any of us because this is a hard thing for all of us. It's very private, but it is a part of your commands and it's a part of your values. You want us to be generous as you were generous with us. So help us, Lord, to, to look out together as a congregation towards our future and to be committed to things that are important to you, our local church, and to make a difference in this world through this body. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.